Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, November 15th. Earlier this week, the Calgary Chamber hosted John Graham, President and CEO of Canadian Pension Plan Investments regarding the health and value of the CPP. We catch up with Deborah Yedlin, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber, to get her takeaways from the fireside chat. We are now 40 days into the war between Israel and the terrorist group Hamas. We get the latest on the conflict and the ongoing humanitarian crisis in the region from Michael Link, professor from the Faculty of Law at Western University. And finally, Health Canada has approved a new nicotine replacement therapy, but anti-smoking advocacy groups are raising the alarm as they claim these products are too accessible to minors. We tackle the topic with Cynthia Callard, Executive Director of Physicians for a Smoke-Free Canada. President and CEO of the Canadian Pension Plan Investments, John Graham, sat down for a fireside chat yesterday in the city of Calgary with members and guests of the Calgary Chamber uh, as Alberta looks at exiting the Canada Pension Plan for a made-in-Alberta version. Deborah Yedlin joins us this morning, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber, to talk about uh, how that discussion went yesterday. Hi, Deb. Good morning. Uh, let's talk about it. So, uh, Mr. Graham, did he kind of, did he come out one way or the other, or was he there to just sort to break down the facts. So uh, John Graham was really there to talk about why the CPP uh, is the right decision, right choice for Canadians, what it does for Canadians, you know, a 75-year time horizon, the fact that it has returned t- almost 10% annualized returns in the last 10 years. When you think about that number in and of itself, think about all the volatility we've had in mm-hmm. the last 10 years, right? Fallen oil prices, the, the, uh, the COVID pandemic, and the, they've still managed to, to, to generate a rate of return. They can manage the risk better. And he talked about that. You know, if you make one investment that doesn't work out so well, it's not going to, you know, have Offset, a big impact right? on your on your, on your your overall returns. The fact that it really is a safety net for so many Canadians who are in, serv- in the service sector, for example, who don't necessarily have the ability to really sock away money that other executives do and in, in, in other higher paying jobs. And so this is really a very important, uh, you know, uh, safety net for all Canadians from coast to coast, no matter where you are. And he also talked about the portability. You pay into the pension plan. It doesn't matter where you retire. You can retire here. You can retire in Victoria. You can go somewhere else outside the country. You still get your pension. There are so many questions about the portability of the Alberta pension plan. We just, you know, there's so many questions that we don't even know. Mm -hmm. And so he was very much about the level set and just talking about what the CPP means for Canadians and how it serves Canadians. The value of having a John Graham, and you mentioned the portability and questions surrounding that, Deborah. But I mean, in general, do you think that uh, the average Canadian knows, uh, you know, uh, 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 I guess a robust enough amount about the CPP to begin with, versus just knowing about the age and the guesstimate of an amount I'll get when I retire? I I think you're you're right. I mean, I don't think a lot of people pay a lot of attention to it. So I guess there, if there's one sort of silver lining in the conversation that we're having in Alberta, it's resonating across the country, and people are actually paying attention to what the CPP actually means and how it's really changed you know since it was restructured in the late 90s yeah, we were chatting a bit off air as you arrived here deb you know about this this is not a new concept this one can't kind of came to light long ago with one ralph klein one ralph klein indeed charged a very young rookie mla with the task of looking into this idea and very quickly came to the conclusion that it didn't make a lot of sense and that was in 2002 or 2003 um, and what was interesting is that also Kathleen Wynne when she was pri- uh, Premier of, uh, of Ontario also looked at uh, potentially doing something similar in Ontario and that never saw the light of day either so provinces have mused looked thought about it before and made drawn the conclusion that it really doesn't make sense. 
How well attended was yesterday's meeting, and, and what was the general, I guess, feeling in the room? Did, could you get a sense of what people were uh, thinking or what they were conversing about after the talk? Well, people really wanted to hear what uh, John was going to say about the pension plan. They also wanted to hear about how the pension plan has been investing in energy. It is, it is very clearly said it is not divesting from its energy uh, investments, and he talked a lot about that. He talked about how it makes sense to be investing in conventional energy as, as well as the decarbonization efforts and the two go hand in hand and the divestment process just doesn't make any sense when you think about it in the, in the longer term especially when we know that the energy you know energy is going to be very important to you know the global economy for for decades to come was there much pushback from the crowd because i mean we get the odd text very odd text of people who think this is a great idea the alberta pension plan but overwhelmingly it seems most people just are not really in favor of that i'm curious what the business community is feeling like in well Calgary. i think there's you know George Brookman, who was a community leader, was uh, was was there yesterday, and he he's on the record saying in the, in the, in the in the Herald today is that he just doesn't think it's a good idea. It's to him, it looks like it's Brexit, and I've heard that before. And other people saying, well, this is something that if we do decide to go ahead with, uh, there's no do over. You've made the decision. You have to drive on. You can't say, well, you know, we'll just wait for the next government to be elected. It doesn't work that way. And I think you know people are talking about that. What was interesting though. You know, the, there was sort of, a, I think, an air of validation. This is what I'm thinking, why it doesn't make sense. When you hear John Graham talk about it, then that's validated. Mm -hmm. Really, the questions that we got in from the audience were about the uh, pension plan's uh, investing philosophy and how it plans to invest in energy. That was really the focus of the questions that came in from the audience. And that's what you want to hear here in Alberta. Absolutely. And I do know that, you know, you don't uh, sit still too long at the Calgary Chamber. Uh, <laughs> you got another early meeting. I wish we did, but we don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's not summer. You're not ready for Christmas break quite yet, Deb. Nope. Speaking with Deb uh, Yedlin, of course, CEO and president of the Calgary Chamber. Uh, I know you have a breakfast on Friday because it's interesting coming off of the meeting uh, yesterday. Yeah, we have a breakfast. We're hosting uh, Finance Minister Horner uh, at 7 a.m. on Friday morning. You can still get tickets at calgarychamber.com. So obviously this will be a topic of conversation as well as well as other you know a fiscal update for what's what the, what holds what's in store for the province so it'll be an interesting conversation all around yeah i mean it's good to have both perspectives right you need to get a balanced view of this because this is absolutely crucial for every canadian and for every albertan and i think you just hit on something really important it, it's, it's as important for canadians as it is for albertans and that's why the discussion needs to be robust and we have to do it in a way that's respectful and informed and the one thing we haven't done i would say as a as a, as a society is make space for those conversations that can be mm -hmm. uh, full of some conflict because of the differing views, but that's the way you actually get to the right solution. Yes. And so I think that's why we're really fortunate we were able to host uh, John Graham and the CPP yesterday, and then we'll be able to talk with uh, Minister Horner on Friday. Is part of this issue the education piece in the sense that it's, it's politicized, and it's unfortunate that it is, but when I think about my retirement, political parties don't come into my head. What comes in is the check that I'll have each and every month to right. make those ends meet, and the education piece is what we all have to do as Albertans at this point. You're absolutely right, and I think what we have to remember is that the, the questions that this would generate, the uncertainty it would generate from an investment standpoint, I think broadly speaking, one thing we tend to forget is that 
the Canadian economy is a very small in terms of uh, how we can finance our own activities, right? So we're a very small part of the global capital markets, call it two to three percent. So that means we have to attract foreign capital and we need that to, to grow, whether it's in the resource sector, the tech sector, it doesn't matter. We look to the foreign capital markets and to foreign investors to support our economic growth. Anything that causes uncertainty is going to mean that those investors are going to look for a higher premium mm. because the risk is the risk metrics are different. And that's not what we need, especially when you think about it in the context of we have what the world needs, fuel, food. We need to continue to grow our economy and, and increase productivity and diversify. We need some foreign investors to help us do that, that foreign capital that we've relied on, you know, since uh, for, for decades. Yeah. I want to circle back to what we started with, you know, before we say goodbye to you, uh, is that, you know, the fact that they said that the, the CPP is is viable for 75 years, you know, and the 10% and the return, 10% average return, wouldn't we all kill for that with a our investments? Absolutely. I mean, if I could, if I could absolutely rely on a 10% annualized rate of return for the next 20, 30, 40 years, I think I'd be very happy, as would many people. And mm -hmm. I think about that 75 years, that means my kids, will be benefiting right. from this pension plan. And I think that's something to keep in mind as well. Incredible. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, of course, as always, when we want to check out a chamber event, calgarychamber.com, can we look at that for, for uh, tickets to the breakfast on Friday? Tickets to the breakfast on Friday, yep. Got it all covered. Thanks so much, Deborah. Thank we you. appreciate it. Deborah Yedlin, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. Hundreds of hostages remain held by Hamas terrorists. Now 40 days into the war, and one of those hostages includes a three-year-old American boy. Joining us to discuss the situation is Michael Link, professor from the Faculty of Law at Western University and former United Nations Special Rapporteur for the Palestinian Territory. Good morning. Welcome back to the program, Michael. Thank you very much, Andy. So what do we know as far as what or any progress that's been made to release the hostages held by Hamas? We do know that there remains intense uh, negotiations, um, mostly uh, mediated by Qatar, uh, between the Americans, the Israelis, and Hamas. Hamas political leaders uh, have been based for the last couple of years in Qatar. Qatar has been a primary donor of money uh, to Gaza over the last number of years. Uh, so it wins itself, if you like, a seat at the table uh, by doing that. And in, a, in an area where there's very little trust uh, between any of the countries or parties, everybody seems to trust the Qataris. Professor, UN trucks expected to be hauling fuel into Gaza today, first time since the October 7th Hamas attacks. So why is Israel now going to let those trucks in? And how do they ensure that the, the terrorists are not able to use it, which is why they were not allowing it in in the first place? Well, keep in mind that that may have been the Israelis' stated reason with respect to this, but the consequence of that was obviously the uh, uh, lack of fuel um, uh, for pumping uh, sanitation, for pumping water, for pumping power in, in Gaza, for allowing hospitals to operate, for allowing homes to be able to, uh, to run. Uh, most leading um, humanitarian figures in the world have called that a form of collective punishment by the denial of fuel getting into uh, uh, into Gaza during that period of time. Um, Israel is allowing it now, I suspect, under extraordinary uh, uh, international pressure because um, almost all of the hospitals have become non-operative in, uh, in Gaza, trying to treat the 2.2 or 2.3 million Palestinians there um, with, um, with incubators um, closing down, um, with 
um, uh, patients on dialysis not being able to receive their treatment with no power in the hospitals, with no power anywhere. The hospitals have, have become really just graveyards. The Gaza region has seen rain in the past few days, uh, Michael, and there's more in the forecast. Uh, does the weather have any impact on the displaced people fleeing the war-torn region at this point? Well, I'm, that's a very good question, and, and it obviously can only add uh, to their uh, to their miseries. The, the times that I've been in Gaza have actually been in the uh, in the fall and winter. Um, it's you know it's not our winter and not a Canadian winter, but it's cold and wet. It reminds us of, of say a March or a uh, or October or November uh, in Canada, and you have you know hundreds of thousands, perhaps over a million, uh, who have been displaced. Uh, within Gaza, living either out in the open, living within schoolyards or hospitals, or under makeshift uh, tents from any materials that they can get. Um, the rain only only increases the, uh, uh, the suffering that's going on there. Yesterday, Professor, the U.S. announcing another round, a third round of sanctions targeting <clears throat> terrorist group Hamas. What are the sanctions focusing on? Do they actually have an impact on a terrorist group? Uh, um, it's it's going to be hard to tell. I mean, uh, the Hamas has been targeted as a uh, as a terrorist organization by the United States and by Canada for uh, for a number of years now. Um, what it means is isn't it probably a, an exerted attempt to try to find bank accounts. Uh, which may be funding uh, Hamas operations, um, but the United States probably you know, also realizes that they, uh, Hamas, they still have to bargain with uh, as well, particularly with respect to the uh, Israeli hostages that are being kept in uh, in Gaza. Uh, so while these um, uh, while these targeted uh, sanctions may be trying to hit them financially, um, there is there. My understanding is that Hamas has a fair amount of money that is stored uh, away in uh, Gulf countries, which has been used to uh, to be able to fund uh, some of its external operations. We are speaking this morning uh, with Michael Link, professor from the Faculty of Law at Western University and former United Nations Special Rapporteur for the Palestinian Territory. Uh, in your opinion, Michael, what comes next? Do you have any optimism whatsoever that peace can be achieved in the region? Um, not in the short run and not likely in the medium run. Um, uh, when, if and when this operation, and it's, it's obviously a question of when, um, this assault on Gaza winds up uh, coming to a close, um, uh, Israel will uh, want to make sure that they have dominant control over the, uh, over the territory. You know, it's, it's, this is sometimes portrayed as a war between uh, Hamas and, uh, and Israel, or Israel and Hamas. Um, but it, it really has profound implications with respect to the ongoing 56-year-old occupation uh, of the Palestinians in the occupied territory. Yeah, Israel has shown no interest, certainly recent political leadership has shown no interest in wanting to bargain uh, for a genuine two-state solution between uh, Israel and, uh, and the Palestinians. Um, Pr uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has uh, outlined his strategy a number of years ago by saying that uh, in defending his decision to allow Qatar to allow money to go into uh, Gaza by saying the more we strengthen Gaza, the more we weaken uh, the Palestinian Authority and the more we prevent a, a Palestinian state. Um, Israel will now have to come up with a, a new solution uh, with respect to this, but their strategy will remain the same as to prevent any meaningful Palestinian self-determination from occurring in the uh, in the occupied territories leading to a Palestinian state and I'm uh, and when I think of um, who's going to be administering uh, Gaza in the aftermath uh, once a, once a genuine ceasefire 
has been achieved. I'm not seeing um, very many countries, including Arab countries, and certainly not the Palestinian Authority, wanting to put their hands up, saying, uh, you know, pick me, pick me. This is, this is the view is that if Israel broke this, uh, it's up to it to uh, to wind up uh, wind up fixing it. So there will be, I think, a great deal of negotiations over who funds the reconstruction of Gaza, but more importantly, who administers uh, Gaza. The Palestinian Authority has said, you know, we would eventually at some point maybe willing to go in, but not Gaza last. They want this, they would only be willing to take up some responsibility for the administration of Gaza if this, if this leads clearly to a two-state solution. And I don't see that on the horizon. Do you think, is there any possibility that Israel can even rid Gaza of Hamas in, in its entirety? I, I highly doubt that. Um, the uh, What you have is a rising popularity, certainly among Palestinians and many in the Arab world, for Hamas. Uh, not so much for what happened, the, the atrocities that happened on October 7th, that, it, that it's willing to try to fight back against a what Barack Obama calls an unbearable occupation. Um, and they see the Palestinian Authority, whose rational debt was to lead Palestinians to a two-state uh, solution, as being unable to do more than provide municipal services in a handful of Palestinian cities in, in the West Bank. Um, therefore, uh, you know, Hamas's uh, star has only risen. Um, the Palestinian Authority's um, star has uh, has fallen even further. And so, the ability to try to reach, if you get to have a united Palestinian polity uh, that could even negotiate uh, at a negotiating table with Israel, uh, is doesn't seem to be there. Michael, thanks for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Sue and Andy, thank you very much for having me again. Thank you. Michael Link, professor from the Faculty of Law at Western University. From patches to gum, there are lots of options out there to help people quit smoking. But Health Canada has just approved a new nicotine replacement therapy or nicotine pouch, and there's a lot of blowback on this one. Joining us to talk about it is Cynthia Callard, Physicians for a Smoke-Free Canada. Good morning to you, Cynthia. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. I, I say blowback and I think it's warranted. Let's explain to people what exactly these new nicotine pouches are. Can you kind of paint a picture for us of what they are? Well, I think people are familiar with uh, old-fashioned oral tobacco that comes in like a little small tea bag, uh, you know, where people will put the tobacco in their mouth and just kind of let it um, just, you know, liquefy there almost and let, let the saliva pull the nicotine out and that they would get the nicotine hit that way. Can it, a lot of Canadians very... Oral tobacco, chewing tobacco, isn't very popular in Canada. But tobacco companies have kind of shifted gears and they've taken the nicotine out of the tobacco plant and they've taken mushed up pine trees or other substances, added the nicotine to that, added flavorings, added sugaring, sweeteners, put them in little tiny like half tea bag size and are selling them as another way of doing it. Now, in most parts of the world, they're just marketing those as a regular kind of tobacco alternative. But in Canada, those products were banned unless they could be approved as a stop smoking aid. So Canada is the first country to say, oh, yes, okay, we'll, leave, we'll um, authorize these as a therapeutic medication. Well, I don't, I think that's wonky, but that's not our main, our main concern. Our main concern is that we don't have laws for therapeutic medications that protect children from marketing. So there's no law that forbids a, re a convenience store retailer from selling these new nicotine pouches to a kid. And there's no law that stops tobacco companies from advertising them in ways that make them attractive to children. 
Okay. So that, that's why we're concerned. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, so my uh, question to you, and it's interesting because, yes, uh, the literature you read on a product that's uh, here in Canada, maybe there's more than a couple, called Zonic, Z-O-N-N-I-C. It does say, health. it clearly says, Health Canada has approved it. So where is the disconnect here, Cynthia? And, and how can we draw a distinction between this and, for example, the Nicorette gum that is available? And I think that uh, kids could buy that as well, could they not? Yes, in fact, that there is that, uh, you know, there's that, we could call it a weakness in the law that all of natural health products, there's no barrier for children to buy them. They might be um, authorized on the basis that they're intended for people over 18, but there's no laws in place that prevent someone selling them. So, for example, you can go and buy an aspirin, which, you know, uh, you know or some other you know, chlorophyll or some other kind of um, natural health medication. But the, the difference is that the people that make the traditional NRTs are selling them in pharmacies. They're not selling them in convenience stores. And they're not flavoring them with tropical breeze or really like super attractive flavor. And they're not in colorful tins, uh, you know, and they're not sold at really cheap prices. So they're not like under the, they're not sold beside the candy. You know, essentially, in the, or they're not advertised beside the candy in a convenience store. So it's the way the product is marketed that's a problem for us more than the product itself. Not to mention the product is made by a tobacco company, which, you know, the oh, others okay. cessation uh, products are not, right? Well, that, that kind of exposes it. I mean, yeah. tobacco companies are not in the business of getting people to stop using no. cigarettes. Quite the they're opposite. in the business of getting people to keep on using nicotine for as long as they can keep them. So there is that disconnect. I don't think the law recognizes that. In the same way, you, you know, it, it probably should, however, because there's this global tobacco treaty which says you should treat tobacco companies differently than you treat other companies. And, and Health Canada is not applying that law in this case. So in the end, I'm not sure if this is a question that you can answer, Cynthia, is a product like this, uh, and I guess separating the tobacco from the nicotine, uh, uh, truly a healthier alternative or is it just different risks? Well, um, f- from a perspective of children's health, it's probably not that different in that uh, the risk of addiction is probably very similar and the risk of the nicotine on their developing brain and and uh, you know much higher risk for addiction for children than it is for adults nicotine addiction is a pediatric disease people become addicted to nicotine in their adolescence once you're over 20 hardly anybody becomes addicted to nicotine some some a few do but by and large it's an it's a problem of, of adolescence um is a product safer for smokers to use you know, uh, we don't have any evidence that it is, but there's reasons to suppose that it might be because it, you're not inhaling it into the lungs, etc. I mean, in that sense, oral tobacco is probably safer than smoking, but we never recommended that people use it because, you know, you might not get lung cancer, but you'll get mouth cancer or, you know, you, you, there's still, you know, it's, it's um, a difficulty when you have a product as dangerous as cigarettes that almost anything is safer than you know, then, uh, uh, you know, playing Russian roulette is safer than smoking, but we wouldn't recommend that people do that either. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you can really compare this to vaping as well, right? Because, you know, with vaping, that's the whole point is they brought in these, you know, um, really fun flavors, Hawaiian Tropic and, and, you know, candy floss and all the things that were meant to appeal to young people, which is exactly what they've done with this new pouch, Right. It, it is, and, and I think that's the bit that's so heartbreaking, is you would have thought that Health Canada would have learned from it. You know, it was very pro-vaping. When the vaping products were first uh, legalized in Canada in 2018, they allowed all these promotions, like they allowed 
you know, Instagram promotions with people and they have parties and, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of very youth attractive things. Took them a couple of years to clamp down on that. And they waited until they had a measure that a lot of young people were using them before they took action. They failed to take a precautionary approach. So you would think that they would do that this time. I, I generally do not understand what they were thinking when they authorized this product in the way they did. All right. Uh, thanks for your insight, because this is some, uh, seems to be something that has uh, just come up upon us, and it seems to me a little bit like putting the horse before the mm. cart. But what do I know anyway? Thanks so much, Cynthia. Well, thank you so much for your interest in children's health. I really appreciate it. Appreciate your time. That's uh, Cynthia Callard, Executive Director of Physicians for a Smoke-Free Canada. You can find out more about her organization at smoke-free.ca. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.